And then in terms of preparing your body, like if you're the one receiving the anal play, is there anything you recommend? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you want to be able to clean out for your partner, right? You don't want to have an accident on your partner. And so you do want to clean your bottom out for approximately 30 minutes to an hour prior. And you can use something called an enema. You can get a 90cc bulb, something around 90 to 100cc or so. And you can use warm water. Don't make it too hot because that'll stimulate your colon. Don't make it too cold. It can cause cramping. But clean out. Welcome back to the Rena Malik MD podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rena Malik, urologist and pelvic surgeon. Today we are joined by Dr. Kung Kung Patel, a board-certified gastroenterologist and renowned expert in irritable bowel syndrome and pelvic floor dysfunction causing gastrointestinal symptoms. She's also regularly seen on the media giving her expert opinion on gastrointestinal issues around the country. On today's episode, we discussed the gut microbiome and gut health. What exactly is a gut microbiome and what can we do to make sure that our gut microbiome is healthy? What are prebiotics and probiotics and is there a role for supplements? What are the best foods that you could eat for your gut health? We also talk about how fasting, cleanses, and artificial sweeteners might affect the gut microbiome. Then we talk about how certain types of diets like the ketogenic diet or the carnivore diet might affect your gut health. We also talk about bloating, constipation, and stinky farts. Why do these things happen and what should you do about them? We also talk about how your gut health is affected not only by what you eat, but by what you see and what you hear and how what you surround yourself with can affect your gut health. Lastly, we talk about sexual health in terms of anal play. What can you do to prepare for anal play to make sure it's the most hygienic and safe as possible and how you could avoid issues like anal sphincter injury, rectal prolapse, and other possible consequences that can occur when anal play is performed incorrectly. And how can you prep yourself for anal play for it to be the most enjoyable and comfortable for both individuals? Dr. Patel, thank you so much for joining us. We are so pleased to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This is an incredible honor and pleasure. So um, today we're going to talk about all sorts of things. We're going to talk about gut health. We're going to talk about anal sex. So if you have little ears around you, make sure you listen to this when they're not around. And so, you know, it'll all be timestamps. So if there's something you don't want to learn about, feel free to forward past that. So let's talk about gut health. What exactly is gut health? Oh, gosh, I feel like it's such an umbrella term, right? Um, The gut microbiome, that's all the healthy bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi that live in our intestines. That makes up the gut microbiome and getting it to a good balance of good bacteria versus the bad ones, is really what's optimal in when we talk about gut health. So our whole purpose in figuring out how to optimize our gut health is to figure out how we can do all the things that we can, what we can eat, what we can see, what we can expose ourselves to, what we should not expose ourselves to, to get our microbiome or our gut bacteria to be optimal, to be in the best of health. And a lot of that is because our immune system lives in our gut. Our um, microbiome dictates how um, our mood, I always say mood is made in our gut. And it's really important to realize that so much of, you know, the rest of the body kind of relies on the metabolites that are made in the gut for them to function, like your heart health, your nervous system. So overall health is really gut health as well. That's amazing. So, you know, the, the one thing that I found so interesting when I learned about it in medical school was that 
that that's our biggest organ outside after skin, right? Skin yeah. is number one and gut is number two. So it, it makes sense that it plays such a huge role in our lives and in mood, like you said, and heart health. And so if your heart is having issues, your sex life is also having issues. So guys, listen up. This is going to give you, you're going to learn so much on this podcast. So what can we do to have a healthy gut? Now there's lots of things. So let's focus, let's start on diet first. Like how can we optimize our diet to get the best gut health? Okay. So that's a great question. You know, gut health is really reliant on the foods that we eat and our bacteria really rely on getting something called prebiotic foods and probiotic rich foods. And that's because our bacteria, the biotic portion of it, is relying on things that is going to help make its metabolites. So when we think about that, think of high fiber foods. So high fiber foods are things that can allow the bacteria to make something called short chain fatty acids, okay? And short chain fatty acids are really the metabolites or breakdown products of fermentation by this bacteria. So when a bacteria are able to make those, then those short chain fatty acids can then bind to other receptors and help make serotonin, your happy hormone. It can help make dopamine, that's your other happy hormone. It can help with insulin sensitivity, which is huge in terms of weight control. It can help give your messages to the brain in terms of how we're supposed to be feeling. And vice versa, you know, it's important to as to what you think and what you see and what you expose yourself to. That's also very important in terms of that. So what do you mean by think, see, exp- like in terms of like what you look at? Like, is that going to affect your gut health? So yes and no. So when you see, what you want to do is to see sunlight and natural daylight, Okay. Our brains have something called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is a fancy term, basically meaning that that's the area of the brain that realizes when it's daytime, when it's nighttime. So our not only do we awaken, but our bodies and our minds awaken when you know the sun is up. And so by getting natural sunlight, your body has something called a circadian rhythm, which runs on 24 hours, and that is awoken by seeing sunlight. And getting at least 20 to 30 minutes of natural light, it can be even on a cloudy day, can really help to, one, set what you know the, temp- the time is in your body and also helps release endorphins, serotonin in your body. So that also allows for the gut to know, okay, it's time to kind of get things moving in our system to get things processing. We don't have to slow down at this time. So when it's daytime, it can start processing. So what you see should be sunlight first. The other thing is is what you hear, right? Having negative or toxic or disruptive sounds, uh, disruptive thoughts, disruptive conversations can actually be negatively impacting our gut health because they can produce stress or anxiety, right? So if you have, you think about if you get in a fight with someone and or you have a bad conversation with someone, you're in a state of almost distress because you're like, oh God, like this person told me something or now I don't feel good, that then triggers your brain to not release serotonin. That's it's it's shutting down the the amount of happiness or happy hormones that it's releasing. And so that alters the way that our intestines move. Sometimes it puts our bodies into almost like a fight or flight mode because the body feels like it's in a state of distress. And chronically, that can really affect the way that our intestines move. Yeah, that's so that's so good because 
you know, we learned in medical school that, so fight or flight, for those of you who don't know, basically your blood flow is taking away from these organs, rest and digest organs, and going towards the ability for you to like run or get away from the stressor, right? And so you're no longer providing blood flow to the gut. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay. Yeah. And then back to the diet, because I wanted to go deeper into that. So prebiotics, probiotics, break it down for us. What is the difference? What are some good foods that will give us both prebiotics and probiotics? And our supplements, like, is there a role? Some of the best moments in life are spontaneous, unplanned. But for men dealing with moderate to severe erectile dysfunction, or ED, preparing for intimacy can rob you and your partner of spontaneity. The joy of living in the moment. Now you can restore that spark in your relationship with the AMS 700 implant, a clinically proven permanent solution designed for your satisfaction and your partner's. It's the number one physician-preferred implant. It's built to look and feel natural. Happy partners agree. 92% of patients and 96% of their partners report sexual activity with the implant excellent or satisfactory. It gives you the ability to respond to your partner's wishes in the moment, not minutes or hours later. The AMS 700. No pills, no injections, no waiting. For more information, visit edcure.org slash podcast. That's E-D-C-U-R-E dot O-R-G slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Sponsored by Boston Scientific. For them. Okay. So think of prebiotics as food for the probiotics, okay? So food for our bacteria can include onions. It can include garlic, asparagus. Um, think of your green, leafy, rough veggies, okay? So you think about like, you know, asparagus and broccoli and your Brussels sprouts, right? Those are fiber-filled foods that will feed the bacteria. Now, what bacteria, the probiotic bacteria that you think of include lactobacillus, right? You think of, you see a bottle of a kefir or a yogurt, you see on there, it's written all different kinds of lactobacillus. That's one of the probiotic bacteria. Bifidobacterium, that's another one. Rhamnosus is another one. And so those are key uh, probiotic bacteria that are very important in helping to make those metabolites called short-chain fatty acids. Got it, got it. And so what's the difference between prebiotics and probiotics? So prebiotics are the foods and the probiotics are the, are bacteria. the bacteria. Got it, got it. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So um, is there... Foods. So as you mentioned, there's foods that are the prebiotics and then the probiotics, kefir, yogurt. What else is there that we could have? Like, are there fermented foods or yeah. things like that? So fermented foods, I think, are great. So if, if you don't know, fermented foods are foods that have undergone the natural process of turning their organic sugars into uh, organic acids like lactic acid. Okay. And so I think of them as foods that begin with the K because, again, my name begins with, with a K. And so I'm like, okay, I will tell my patients sauerkraut has a K in there. Kimchi, kefir, kombucha, right? Those are all things. And think about them. They're all kind of tangy. And so those are the foods that contain a lot of live active bacteria. And they have got, undergone the natural process of for, uh, fermentation over time. And so... That, that's why they contain a lot of the lactobacillus or bifidobacterium and multiple other strains that are very healthy for, for you. That's great. And I think, you know, in our culture, we eat a lot of yogurt as like with every meal, we'll often have yogurt. And I yes. think that comes from ancient 
like teachings of like health and how it's good for our gut. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And kiwi. You said something about kiwi on a TV interview. Tell me. <laughs> I, I I did not know about kiwi. That that was a surprise. You know, it's funny. So kiwi originally came from China. Then it was like brought to New Zealand. And now everyone thinks kiwi is a, a New, New Zealand fruit, but it's actually from Asia. And a recent study was published actually in the American Journal of Gastroenterology this past June that says that the consumption of two kiwis per day can actually increase the number of complete spontaneous bowel movements that you can have per week. So let's say at baseline, you have one bowel movement per week. It says that having two green kiwi fruits per day can increase that by one and a half on average. So you'll go from having one bowel movement a week to having three and a half bowel movements per week. So that's a huge change in just including a fruit, okay? And the other thing is that that same study showed that not only does it in increase the number of bowel movements, but also the abdominal discomfort symptoms, which is the bloating, the abdominal cramping, the pain that comes along with having constipation is improved by having the two green kiwi fruit per day. And what's the mechanism? Like, what do they think? How is that working? So they think that, that it's because of the fiber content that's in there, also the water content that's there. And it kind of helps to make a gel-like form to help pass things through and kind of reduce how hard it is for the poop to pass. Got it. And, and is that similar to prunes? Because everyone talks about prunes. I mean, I tell my patients to eat prunes. Oh, yes. I, I'm a big prune fan as well. Prunes and apples, kiwi, it's similar, you know, in terms of how, how they all work and, you know, make it smoother uh, to get the bowels moving. I love it. So back to the prebiotics and probiotics, tell me about supplements because there are so many out there. Is there value in taking a supplement? Should we just be getting it from food? When should you take a supplement? So, you know, I love the word supplement because I think it says it all, right? It is supplemental, right? It is not essential because if it was essential, we would recommend that people get it in any form, no matter what, whether it's over the counter or from food. Supplements are supplemental, which means you don't have to rely on an external source to get it. You should be able to get your probiotics and prebiotics from your food. You shouldn't have to rely on XYZ probiotic pill in order to get good gut bacteria. And so is it helpful? Yes. Is there one perfect one? No. And so, you know, when people say, oh, which, which strain I see you know, this pill has eight strains of bacteria, but this one has 12, so this one's got to be better. We don't know if you need all those 12 strains or what the mechanism or composition of the bacteria is in your gut. And so giving you the one with 12 strains in it versus eight strains may not be the best blueprint for you. And so really, you know, there isn't one silver bullet probiotic supplement pill that's out there. So that's why you won't really see someone making a, you know, a recommendation saying this one more than that one, um, that that is needed. And of course, there is studies showing certain bacteria that strains that are beneficial for you. But no one's going to come out outright and say, this is it. This is the silver bullet. And you must take this. You can get them from foods. So how many servings of prebiotics and probiotics should we be getting in a day? Oh, there isn't a an amount of prebiotics and probiotics. It's the amount of fiber that you should really be concentrating on. And so the ADA recommends uh, that women get 25 grams of fiber per day and men get up to 38. 
And so, you know, that can be in different forms, whether you're getting that as a soluble fiber or an insoluble fiber, but that's what's going to help get a good amount, a healthy amount of pre and probiotic types of foods. Because your body responds to that fiber by Correct. creating the bacteria. The bacteria Correct. eat the fiber. Correct. Right. And so is that ADA recommendation enough? I've heard on the internet that you should be getting a lot more fiber per day. And we're and I think average we get like, what, 12 grams? Is that right? Like uh, people are getting significantly less than the recommended. Correct. And, and some people are use, using the, uh, the fiber gummies, right? And those have about three grams of fiber in one. I mean, you'd have to eat the whole damn jar mm. in order to get a sufficient amount, right? So I think that it's more important to figure out if you can get up to that 30. I feel that chia seeds are actually a quick and easy way to get fiber because one, two tablespoons actually of chia seeds have uh, approximately 10 grams of fiber in them. So really, if you're trying to get to that 38 number or that 25 number, it doesn't take that much of chia seeds, which can really be mixed into you know anything and everything mm -hmm. to get at least some degree of fiber. So what are some other food hacks for fiber? What would you say are some other like really good foods that have a high amount of fiber that we can be adding to our diet to get to that amount? So yeah, so first things first, I would say chia is the number one because it's a small, tiny seed. It's pretty tasteless. You can put it in water. You can put it on food. You can put it in your salad. And if you have kids who are constipated, you can literally make them a chia seed pudding with any form of other liquid, whether it's in their milk, whether it's in a pudding, and you could kind of mix it in and make it into a jelly-like substance, and it's pretty filling. And, you know, it's great for kind of also satiety, right? If you're trying to avoid eating a lot, have fiber first, right? Mm -hmm. That'll prevent your sugar spike. It'll help fill your belly. It'll help it expand. And so that's going to help. So that's your number one for fiber. Number two, I think any cruciferous vegetable that you can get, if it's green, and leafy and hard to cook and or smells like a fart, that <laughs> is probably what you want to eat, right? If it makes you feel bloated because it produces a lot of gas, likelihood is that it's really good for you. Those are not the ones you want to avoid. People are like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to not eat fibrous vegetables because they make me bloat. Yeah, because they produce certain gases, but are you going to not give your gut what it needs no this is a temporary thing where that gas needs to pass that's great in terms of gut health again are there effects of certain you know people are doing all sorts of diets they're doing carnivore diets keto diets what is the effect of your gut microbiome with these sort of diets so you know there is that that old saying right everything in moderation and we're learning more and more that red meat has deleterious effects on the microbiome increases the risk for colon cancers. So of course you want to, if you're gonna eat meat, then you wanna have leaner white meat. If you're going to eat something in terms of filling you up, eat fiber that's going to kind of help that bacteria make those short chain fatty acids. So try to be more plant-based, try to have more fiber. And I'm not gonna tell you to avoid all alcohol or avoid all sugar and you know everything in moderation right am i going to tell you zero sugar for the rest of your life no that's that's impossible being that restrictive is going to be very hard am i going to tell you to avoid as much sugar as you can yes because sugar again overall changes the gut microbiome you become more insulin resistant it's going to increase your weight and so eventually it'll have you um you know craving more carbohydrates more sugar which is then going to impact it and that leads to obesity Having a you know piece of chocolate here and there, that's fine, right? 
in moderation. Have a glass of wine here or there. But is it daily? No. And maybe have your fiber first. Absolutely. The order in which you have things definitely matters, right? If you're going to eat and you've been fasting, intermittent fasting, and the first thing you do in the morning is you're going to eat, the first thing you should probably do is eat something with a protein and a fiber. That is going to prevent your blood sugar from spiking. And instead of having your donut first or, you know, your sugary orange juice first, right? Because that's going to cause the blood sugar to spike significantly. So instead of doing that, have your fiber first so that the spike is much lower when you do add that orange juice in second. So gut health and your skin. So this is something that I, I realized, like actually learned from you on your TV segment that gut health has a huge impact on the quality of your skin and the yeah. collagen. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, our gut flora has so much to do with the overall skin uh, health of our skin. And so you want to really stimulate collagen production and your body really depends on vitamin C for that, right? So a lot of these fermented foods have a lot of, one, a lot of good beneficial bacteria and two, a high content of vitamin C in them. So again, sauerkraut, kombucha, and kiwis, ton of vitamin C that helps with collagen and elastin production. And that can actually stimulate for the collagen and elastin to grow in your skin and gives you that smooth texture. That's awesome, man. What you eat Forget Botox, man. Start eating real food. Yes. Start eating fermented food. Start eating kiwi. Yes. And see the benefit on your skin. 100%. That's awesome. So there's some data on fecal transplants for people who have bad gut microbiome, right? Like with, this is something that occurs due to diet, but also is passed down generationally, I understand. And so at some point, like, you know, it may be difficult to repopulate good bacteria. Is that, is, am I, am I, do I understand that correctly? Yeah. So especially in people who've got something called recurrent clostridium difficile infections, and you have tried antibiotic courses to help, you know, treat and get rid of this uh, bacteria and overgrowth of this bacteria. If over time and multiple rounds of treatment for C. diff is not working, then and it is indicated to get something called a fecal microbiota transplant. There are actually now new pill forms of the FMT that have come out that are FDA approved to actually get that good bacteria back to kind of repopulate your gut such that it actually prevents the recurrence of another C. diff infection. So do you see a future where we'll be able to assess the bacterial load of someone's gut microbiome and then be able to either take a pill or do like a, a fecal transplant to repopulate like a healthy gut? Is that something that you think you know, could happen in the future? Some version of it. I mean, there are so many of these tests out there that are like, you know, that are testing your microbiome, that are testing, you know, how much sensitive, what sensitivities you are and all that kind of stuff. I think it's in the works. You know, we certainly haven't perfected anything of that nature yet. And, you know, it's going to take a lot of time because each of us has a variable microbiome that is ever changing, right? Every time you eat something or Let's say you eat something bad or you have an infection, whether you have a cold or you ate a bad taco, right? Your your microbiome changes. So it's an ever-changing thing. So how often are you going to sequence it? How, how expensive is it going to be? How accurate is it going to be, mm-hmm. right? Those are all things that we don't quite know yet. Yeah. But in an ideal world where money isn't an issue and access is not an issue and you know, you know, getting to a scientific, you know, validity. Yeah, that'd be great where we could, you know, have it sequenced all the time live. You're like, all right, I'm missing a little bit of bifidobacterium today. And I'm going to eat just uh, two more ounces of kefir. And, you know, that is it. I'm back down to perfection. 
Yeah. I would love that. <laughs> and so, yeah, some of these, so you make a good point that like some of these things are taking one snapshot in a moment, right? These at home tests. And so they're not necessarily giving you data of like a long time span. So it may not be relevant. Is that right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. And a lot of it is also, you know, because it's ever changing, we don't know, one, it's very long. And two, it's again, it's a snapshot. And so it, it's too versatile for us to really hone it down and say, okay, this is the exact formulation that you need today. And that's that. In terms of other things that can affect gut health, how about fasting or artificial sweeteners or cleanses? Like how are these things playing a role? Ooh. Okay. So let's, let's tackle each of those. Intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting, as you do it for a longer and longer time, it helps by reducing your insulin levels and um, also lack of stimulation by food, specifically sugars, helps to allow for certain types of bacteria to grow and allows for the bad bacteria to be able to not proliferate as much, which is certainly helpful. It helps in terms of insulin sensitivity. Okay. So that will alter the microbiome and have you craving things that are healthier rather than always craving, craving maybe more sugary, more carbohydrate-rich foods, okay? Is there like a length of fast that's like that's been looked at specifically? I mean, is it good to do a shorter fast or a longer fast or like people are doing week-long fasts? There, that is a varied and an entire topic in itself. I think there have been studies that at least 16 hours to 18 hours is a good window as to when you start seeing an effect in terms of insulin sensitivity. But there are so many varying studies out there. You know, some say, you know, you just need at least 12 hours to see some benefits. Some people say, you know, 16 hours a day makes a big difference. But for some people, hormonally, you know, genetically, and also with their underlying stress levels, that may not be possible for them. Because if you're putting your body under constant stress by fasting, you may be raising your underlying cortisol levels. And if on top of that, you have a stressful life, or you have psychological distress, it may not be as effective for you, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, while you're doing it all correctly, you may be starving for five days on end and then not seeing some of the results because other hormones have come into play. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's really important to remember. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. And then what about cleanses? Oh, cleanses. So there isn't really a cleanse out there that is, you know, perfect or recommended because one, it's just temporarily wiping out the flora of your gut. And, you know, there's the cayenne pepper one. I think that, you know, Beyonce has done and she's lost, you know, weight on this. Um, I'm sure it's great. Temporarily, yes, it, it will likely flush out some pounds and, and, you know, make you look good. But our gut microbiome replenishes. And you, as soon as you introduce some of those other foods back in, it automatically oftentimes returns to its different or natural state. So do I recommend it? Not really. If you're going to do any cleanse, a fast is probably a good one. So you're not putting something in, but kind of eliminating things for a while. The other thing is a colonic cleanse. Those are, I would not recommend because one, they're dangerous. Okay. Putting 60 to 80 liters of water into your colon uh, without, you know, a way to look inside the actual lumen or the tract of the, G, of the GI tract can be very dangerous. I mean, it can there can be a high risk for the colon bursting, right? And you may just alter the microbiome significantly to the point that, you know, it hasn't made a difference. Or you may end up with something called electrolyte imbalances, right? 
the amount of salt and chloride that's in your in your body may get really out of whack and you may absorb too much water. That could be dangerous, right? And all in the name of what? Looking two pounds thinner, three pounds, 10 pounds thinner temporarily? It's not worth it. Yeah. And that's different from an enema, right? Enemas Correct. are safe. Correct. What if, I remember there was this TikTok trend about a coffee enema. Oh, um, <laughs> I don't remember what it was claiming to do, but I remember that it was it was very viral for some time. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't think I watched it enough to comment on it. Yeah, but not there's no value to adding coffee to your enema. No. Okay. <laughs> and then is there any data on artificial sweeteners and your gut microbiome? Oh, yeah. I mean, in terms of artificial sweeteners are can be super damaging, right? Things like sorbitol and a lot of these fake sugars because of the fact that they affect our insulin levels, right? Our brain is expecting to receive some degree of carbohydrates and is expecting that dopamine or serotonin hit. And so you're craving these sugary things and instead you gave it a fake sugar, right? So your body's like, okay, I got something sweet, but it wasn't the sugar hit I was looking for. So let me try to get some more. So then that has you craving more and more. And what that actually ends up leading to is more insulin resistance and obesity down the line. So while you may have temporarily crave, you know, given yourself the the sweet satisfaction, it didn't actually give your brain that hit that it needed. And so it continues to crave it until you actually get that sugary food in you and you finally uh, feel satisfied. Well, that's a bummer. <laughs> as we drink our, as yeah, we drink our artificially sweetened drinks. <laughs> okay. So I think in terms of, we've covered a lot about gut health. What So what is leaky gut? Is that like a problem with gut health? What does that mean? I mean, if we've all heard that term, right? You've got a leaky gut. Yeah. What does that mean? So leaky gut is, I would just say, a layman's term for intestinal permeability. Okay. That just means that what we call the tight junctions, that's the how the cells are kind of sitting next to each other and how they're communicating with one another, those junctions in between those cells are not as tight and not as cohesive as they were. And that junction is oftentimes that barrier has been disrupted. And it's disrupted by foods and toxins and things that you eat or consume. And because that is broken, that barrier has been broken, those toxins can get into your bloodstream much easier that for some people can cause an inflammatory response. And for some people that can lead to inflammatory bowel disease. It can lead to irritable bowel syndrome and make it happen temporarily. It can happen more long-term, but that's the whole premise behind leaky gut or irritable bowel syndrome. So what kinds of foods are really, and I guess toxins that we're exposed to that could put you at risk for getting leaky gut? Oh, you know, think about your typical things like alcohol, high sugar, processed foods, okay? So, you know, high fructose corn syrup, right? Again, those things that give us the dopamine hit that make us feel good, and it's easy, right? It's easy to reach for it, it's quick, and you know, you're thinking, okay, as a working person, I need a meal and I need it fast, so instead of fast food, I'm gonna get food fast. That having that food fast that is processed is altering what is going in and how our intestines are able to connect with each other. And that is what's causing that intestinal permeability, which is leading to an alteration in how our gut microbiomes talk to one another, how it causes the gut to move, and even make that happy hormone that we want. So you mentioned irritable bowel syndrome. Can you define that for our audience? Oh, yes. Irritable bowel syndrome is defined by 
a change in the character and stool and defined by abdominal pain that's been happening for the last six months or so. That's defined by the Rome Foundation. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I, we see a lot of patients, uh, particularly I see a lot of patients with who have irritable bowel syndrome. They also have very often pelvic pain associated with it because it becomes sort of a almost a central sensitization syndrome. So they'll have you know, migraines, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, interstitial cystitis, which is a bladder condition, as well as pelvic pain. And so we'll see a lot of these comorbid conditions. And I wonder if a lot of them start from what we're putting in our bodies. Absolutely. I mean, so much of it is you see them coexisting because there's been an overall change in the microbiome. That because of that change in that microbiome, the metabolites or whatever is being sent to the brain through the vagus nerve is then dictating how we're supposed to feel. So let's say it's depleting the amount of happy hormone serotonin. We're now in a state of stress or anxiety. And then the brain is saying, okay, well, this amount of stress or anxiety is not good. Let's let the rest of the body know that we're under distress. And let's say in terms of the bladder, it says, okay, well, we're unhappy. Let's try to evacuate all of its contents, right? So it's always kind of cramping up and allow and making you feel like you have a UTI permanently, right? Every day you wake up and feel like you have, you know, an overactive bladder that needs to empty itself and is always feeling like you've got to pee. And so that same thing is because the nerves are on overdrive on the bladder and causing you to feel, feel that way. Similarly, in IBS, your stress and the anxiety is now telling the nerves in the GI tract, okay, you know what? We are in a fight or flight mode. We have to either hold all the contents in until we're relaxed enough to poop, or we need to evacuate all the poop out of our intestines so that we are, can get ready to fight, right? And that's the premises behind why some people get diarrhea when they get IBS and other people get constipation when they get IBS. It's because those nerves are constantly going like this. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's the same set of nerves that we get from the brain that go to every part of our body, to, to our muscles, to our bones, to our nervous system, and so that's how they react. Each each body system has its own outlet, and that's how it reacts. And that's the same thing for traumas, right? Like if you've been exposed to trauma in your lifetime, and you've not, maybe you don't even remember it, maybe like not allowed yourself to process it. But a lot of times, also these patients have had some major trauma in their life, and this is how it's now manifesting. And you know, there's a great book about the body keeps score, and it kind of talks about that a little bit. But I think that's another part that people often really kind of don't talk about. But I think it's super important to realize, like, it's important to take time to take care of yourself, whether it's therapy, stress relief, meditation, yoga, whatever it is, right? Like, find what works for you and keep doing it. Put it on the calendar, man. We are too busy. I see people who are workaholics all the time. And I'm like, look, I, I the work will always be there. Yes. The stresses of life will always be there. You have to learn to live among them. Yes, absolutely. And your body has to have an outlet because if you don't give it an outlet, it will find one in the form of migraines or stress or a bloated belly or diarrhea, right? Or migraines or whichever have you. So it's going to find itself its outlet and let it out. So it's either you or your body's going to do it on its own. Yeah. Let's move to bloating. <laughs> Let's talk about it. What causes bloating? Because it's very uncomfortable. A lot of people come in and they have bloating and they're worried it might be a cancer. And sometimes, you know, we do worry about that. But I think generally, what's the more common things that you see that cause bloating? Yeah. So, you know, one of the most common things, obviously, for bloating is 
the fibrous foods that you're eating, right? A lot of people are like, you know what? I'm going to eat that salad. I'm going to eat broccoli and asparagus because I've heard all over the internet that I need to have high fiber food. So people start introducing it. They're like, oh, well, it makes me bloated. Well, yeah, those are non-digested, you know, plant sugars. And because they're not digested, they ferment and, you know, takes place in the second portion of the small intestine. So now it's got to travel through. And before it travels through, it kind of makes you bloat. Okay. The other thing is that you can have something called a visceral hypersensitivity. Again, like we talked about, that stress is then um, giving signals through the nerves, the, the vagus nerve down to the nerves in your GI tract that says, okay, well, we are in a state of stress. We need to either accommodate by making room because we're not sure when we're going to eat. So we're going to make a lot of room so we can have a lot more food or we're going to start rumbling and pushing everything through as quick as possible. And that can cause bloating. So sometimes out of nowhere, it can happen as well. So it's called visceral hypersensitivity. It can be a bacteria, right? There is a bacteria called H. pylori, Helicobacter pylori, that is very prevalent in some countries. And now it's all over the world, truly, because we, you can get it from anywhere, from foods, from utensils, from one another. And, you know, when ingested through foods over time, it can cause ulcers, but it can certainly cause bloating and gastritis. And so sometimes it can be bacteria. Other times it can just be an overgrowth of the bad bacteria. You've taken an antibiotic and wiped out so many things because you had a cold or you had an infection and now you have a lot of bad bacteria that's fermenting in there and causing that bloating. That's why you should never take antibiotics unless you absolutely need them. Yes. So I'm a huge proponent because I see tons of women and men, but more women than men who've had recurrent urinary tract infections and they're not really urinary tract infections or they, you know, they haven't been treated appropriately. And so they've been on like 10 or 15 courses of antibiotics and that will completely wipe out all the good bacteria in your bladder and your gut everywhere else. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, people think like, oh, I'm doing myself a favor. No, it's actually altering it to, you know, having deleterious effects. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we did talk a little bit about constipation with kiwi helping and prunes helping. You know, people want to know what causes constipation and what can we do to prevent it or, or get better? So constipation is really, you know, I say it's multifactorial. You know, people just think it's just slow moving bowels, but there's so much more to constipation than just slow moving bowels. It can be that, right? Because maybe you just haven't had enough fiber or you're on certain medications, whether it's magnesium or calcium supplementation that can slow it down. If you're on iron supplementation, that can make you constipated. If you have diabetes, okay, or are taking one of the new medications for weight loss or diabetes, like Ozempic, that actually slows down how your intestines empty. So that can cause constipation. So that's one form. There is something called IBS type C, so irritable bowel syndrome, that's constipation predominant. And that's the one where your body reacts to the underlying stressors that it's feeling and says, okay, we are in a, a low state of fight or flight and we are going to hold all of our contents in until we are in a state of freedom where we can go to our toilet in peace and let it out. And you'll often see like my patients come in, they're like, I traveled to France for a business trip and the entire four days that I was there, I didn't use a single toilet in Paris. And I'm like, wow, that's terrible. They're really nice bidets there. And <laughs> and they, I was like, you didn't even use one once? And they're like, no, I, but as soon as I got home, 
I let it all out and four days worth of stool came out. I'm like, my God, that American toilet had it all. So, you know, and that's a, you know, very classic form of IBS type C and that's a stress mediated. And then last but not least, there is pelvic floor dysfunction. And these could all overlap, by the way, but pelvic floor dysfunction, you have something like childbirth or surgery or trauma sexual trauma or stress or stress that where your muscles just don't necessarily want to coordinate with each other and allow for that poop to come out naturally and so that it's almost fighting the urge to come out and so and then one other you know set of muscles is like okay let's just stay in let's just stay closed let's not let it out and so they're kind of you know not working together and so you get pelvic floor dysfunction over time so the three can overlap you can have them simultaneously separately but there's all different reasons for why you can have constipation. Yeah. You mentioned magnesium. So people sometimes take magnesium for mm-hmm. constipation. Which type of magnesium? I mean, you go to the supermarket, right? There's like four different types of magnesium. Some are better for sleep. Some are better for bowels. Some are better for whatever. So what do you recommend? So magnesium oxide and magnesium citrate are the best ones in terms of constipation. One of the newer studies recently showed that magnesium oxide can be one of your first go-to over-the-counter therapies for when you are, you know, about run-of-the-mill constipated because it's it's easy, effective. Do have to be careful if you've got an issue with your kidneys and that are not working as well, but that's one of the first things you can kind of turn to over-the-counter. So food, fiber, magnesium, what else are some easy things people can do at home to help with constipation? Water. Water, water, water. We don't get enough water in our day. You know, the first things often we wake up and we're like, okay, coffee, I need to open my eyes. I need to get ready because I didn't get enough sleep. And so let me, you know, chug that Starbucks first. Water. Start with water first because if you can get enough water into your system around 64 to 100 ounces a day, then you can also have enough things absorbed into your actual, you know, stool and allow for it to kind of move through your body. So is it true that what coffee helps you go, right? Like, is that something like people are like, oh, I need my cup of coffee or I won't poop? Or is it just the fluid that's actually making them go? A little bit of both. So hot coffee actually can stimulate the bowels, so as can hot water. So it doesn't have to necessarily be the hot coffee itself. But coffee has caffeine, which also stimulates your bowels to move. So again, it's the two in combination that a lot of people need in order to kind of stimulate the peristalsis or muscle muscle movement in the colon to have that bowel movement. But that's so interesting because even in Indian culture, right, people drink hot water in the morning. Yes, yes. And maybe that's part of the reason. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, people have fennel water, hot water, lemon water. All those things are things that stimulate colonic contractions. And so they, they've got something, you know, in that in, uh, based on science. Yeah. So if you're trying to avoid coffee in the morning or limit your caffeine, I encourage you to try some hot water. Yeah, or absolutely. Some, or some like herbal tea, which is warm that doesn't have the caffeine because that yes. may be helpful. Yeah. And even black coffee, it's got chlorogenic acid in it. It's helpful for the cells in your colon as well. So what about movement? Movement helps with constipation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, moving your body will move your bowels mm-hmm. for sure. So getting 20 to 30 minutes of, you know, aerobic exercise per day will one help that good bacteria start to ferment and helping that good bacteria start to ferment will help make more serotonin serotonin our happy hormone also modulates how we empty our bowels so it'll help keep things flowing as well man are these little bacteria are so sensitive it's so sensitive <laughs> no matter how tough you think you are your bacteria still need you to do all the right things 100 yeah <laughs> so 
One last sort of medical question that will move on to the interesting sort of sexual health stuff. Tell me about stinky farts. Like, what can you do about them, right? Oh, man. Okay, so stinky farts, this I, I hear often from a lot of my patients. And stinky farts are a product of, one, what you eat, right? So if you had a lot of fiber that has that eventually produces sulfur, right? So you have a lot of cabbage, asparagus, broccoli. Those foods, those fibrous foods do contain sulfur. So your farts will come out smelling a lot like the foods you eat. Just like how your pee smells a lot like that asparagus that you ate, your fart will con- you know, smell like the sulfurous, fibrous food that you've consumed. So that's one. Number two, if you have an overgrowth of bacteria, of certain bacteria, you know, that is going to make it stinkier, right? If you have an infection through something called Giardia, that's going to make it stinky as well. And so it's not just what you've eaten, but it's the bacteria in your gut. And that's what it's preventing and causing it to come out. That's causing it to be stinky. So when should people see you for stinky farts? Because some, it could just be what they're eating or it could be a bacterial overgrowth. How do they know which is which? It's got to be, you know, when the, the, the smell has really changed from their norm, right? I mean, your poop is going to stink, right? No one's smells good, right? And like I have smelled it all. No one's smells good. So if the odor has now changed and it's very different from what you normally smell and, you know, maybe there's been a change in your diet, maybe there hasn't, let your doctor know because sometimes it can, you know, signify something even more significant like like rectal cancer or colon cancer. And so, or inflammatory bowel disease, something else is kind of, you know, going on brewing in there that needs to be addressed and looked on with a scope with biopsies to really address that. And so, yeah, if it's different for you and it's stinkier than normal, maybe you have an infection like Clostridium difficile. Maybe you have Giardia. Or maybe you just ate a lot more veggies than you were anticipating and that's that. You must be seeing so much crazy stuff with the cauliflower craze, like so many more bloating and stinky farts yes, and all that. Yes. Yeah, and cauliflower everything, you know, cheesy crisp everythings. Yeah, every, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> So one serious thing, colon cancer, we're seeing a lot more, not that, sorry, not that anything we've talked about is not serious, but kind of more serious. We're seeing a lot of young people get colon cancer. Yeah. Why? And what can we do to prevent it? And how, when should we be seeing a GI doctor? Yeah. So it's it's unfortunate in the last, you know, decade or so, we've seen, you know, younger and younger people getting colon cancer. And a lot of that has been attributed to sedentary lifestyle smoking, increasing amounts of, you know, processed foods that's altering our bacteria. And so all those things are leading to a higher risk of us developing colon cancer. And so now the age to get colon cancer screening has dropped down to 45. So, uh, you know, if you are approaching that age or you have family members who have had polyps during their colonoscopies or have had colon cancer, let your doctor know. Because it's 10 years before that family member was diagnosed for you or 45, whichever comes sooner. Even if it's a benign polyp. Well, so it's defined. So if it's it's a benign polyp that has no precancerous tissue, which is called an adenoma, then it's considered truly benign. But if your parent was, let's say, told that they have an adenoma, which is a precancerous polyp, and they were, you know, when they got their colonoscopy, they were 48, you should be getting your colonoscopy at the age of 38, Okay. But if you have a first-degree relative with colon cancer and they were before the age of 60, let's say they were 57, okay? Don't wait till 47 to get your colonoscopy. And now the guidelines say you can start at 40, okay? So be preventative. You can start at 40 if you have a first-degree relative that has the colon cancer. 
And otherwise, 45. And if they had a polyp, but they're not sure, they should still just come in, they right? They still just come in and have it checked out because you never know. Sometimes even, you know, the mild rectal bleeding, they're like, oh, I see some blood when I wipe. I think it's a hemorrhoid. I've diagnosed myself. Have you been using preparation H? It's gotten under control to some degree. But how do you know? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, untreated or undiagnosed constipation can actually be colon cancer or rectal cancer. And it's it's heartbreaking to see, you know, the evaluation when it it's it's progressed so far along and, you know, hasn't been checked out. So if this is a new symptom for you and it's worrisome, talk to your doctor about it. A lot of people are scared of that, the prep. Or do you have any tips for that? You know, it's it's one day and you the best thing you can do is not have a ton of so, have, having solid food the day before your colonoscopy because if you go and have lighter soups and broths it's a lot easier to poop that out than steak and fries so remember this is not your last supper okay this is not your last supper you're going to have a great meal after your colonoscopy so don't go have a binge before your colonoscopy and say oh i'm going to take a cleanse and be done Go light, actually, the the day before your colonoscopy. Have, you know, more of a light liquid diet, and it'll make your prep a lot easier. And there are preps now with lower volumes, uh, ones that are mixed with Gatorade and Miralax so that you're still keeping up your electrolytes, and it doesn't taste as horrible as some of the other preps. So we're going to talk about anal play. (laughs) So I got a lot of questions about about gut health and anal play. One of the the interesting one was I want to pass gas before I go on a date. Like, so I'm not actively passing gas during the date. Uh Date. Uh During (laughs) During the date. So what, do you have any tips? Guys, do you ever find yourself dragging through the day, low on energy, having trouble in the bedroom, or just not feeling like yourself? You might be experiencing something more common than you think, testosterone deficiency or low T. Did you know that low testosterone affects about 40% of American men over 45? As men age, testosterone levels continue to decline. You might notice signs like impotence, changes in sexual desire, depression, reduced muscle mass, or even fatigue. But here's the thing. It's not just about low T. It's about your overall well-being. That's where Rethink Testosterone comes in, a great resource for all men to learn about how testosterone affects their bodies. Rethink Testosterone is your go-to platform with tons of educational content and evidence-based scientific studies that go over everything you want to know about testosterone, from how low testosterone affects you to the common myths about testosterone replacement therapy and options for treatments. So check out RethinkTestosterone.com, your hub for all things testosterone and low T. Rethink Testosterone is on a mission to change the narrative and stigma around men's hormone health. Why wait? Visit RethinkTestosterone.com today and consider checking your testosterone levels. Always remember, you're worth it. Rethink Testosterone, because understanding your health is the first step to owning it. Head to www.RethinkTestosterone.com today and make taking care of your body a priority. One, I don't know if you can control when it's going to happen. It might happen if it's a long date. You might have to pass gas during that date, my friend. So if you want to really ensure that it's not going to be happening, empty your bowels before you go. I would say maybe 30 to 60 minutes before you go on that date, have a good bowel movement. And if you've already emptied out for the day, I don't know if I would recommend taking laxatives, but if you really want to, you can. You can have some take some Miralax and ensure that you have bowel movement, but... Oftentimes, even taking that Miralax, which is undigested polyethylene glycol, could actually make you bloated and make you pass gas. So 
may not be the best idea. So if you've already had a bowel movement for the day, you might be good. There may not be any way to avoid it. If you're in a loud restaurant, I'm sure they won't even hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't stress too much. Everybody farts. Yes. Guys, everybody farts. Yes. And Miralax can take, at least in my, uh, uh, my, um, what I tell patients is it can take up to three days yes. for, for Miralax to work. Yes. So that may not be as effective Correct. Um, in, in terms of trying to get you to fart beforehand. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you've got colonic matter and fecal matter all throughout your colon and it's constantly moving. So even if you've cleaned out, let's say the first six to eight inches of your colon and your rectum, there's still stuff left inside and that's eventually going to move. And produce gas and that's gonna have to get farted out at some point so it's coming yeah all right guys <laughs> what about anal play so anal play can be you know people asked about anal lingus people asked about penetrative intercourse butt plugs are there ways to prepare yourself so that you don't get any fecal matter or bacteria ne negative bacteria on your partner for let's say anal lingus Oh, okay. So I would say the first things first is shower and clean yourself up. You can use a mild soap. I mean, you can use unscented hygienic wipes to clean the anal area first. Okay. But beware that there is still bacteria there and you want to be careful. You can still get STDs from doing anal lingus. So you want to be careful with that. If you want to do foreplay with the finger, consider using a glove or a condom and that way you're protecting yourself from any STIs and still getting to have fun. Yeah. And then also in terms of analingus, you can use a dental dam, right? Yes, like you, you, you can cut up a condom or you can buy a dental dam and put it on the area before you sort of get involved to kind of prepare, protect yourself from any sort of STI. Yeah. And protect your partner as well yeah. from any oral STIs that may be there. And then in terms of preparing your body, like if you're the one receiving the anal play, is there anything you recommend? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you want to be able to clean out for your partner, right? You don't want to have an accident on your partner. And so you do want to clean your bottom out for approximately 30 minutes to an hour prior. And you can use something called an enema. You can get a 90 cc bulb, something around 90 to 100 cc's or so. And you can use warm water. Don't make it too hot because that'll stimulate your colon. Don't make it too cold. It can cause cramping. But clean out um, approximately an hour before. You can lay on your side. You can bend on your knees and, uh, and arms and do that. And then you don't want to go in too far. You, you know, deeper is not better, right? You're not trying to clean out the entire colon, okay, for your partner. Your partner's not that big that they're reaching into your ascending colon, which is on, on the right side, okay? So you're really trying to clean out the last 15 to 20 centimeters, okay? And beyond that is what we call the rectosigmoid junction that starts to get to the twisty part. So if you're trying to get deep in there, you may actually be making and uh, making more of a mess than if you just try to clean out the last 15 to 20 centimeters. Can you even really get in there? I mean, you'd have to use like a catheter to get in there. You couldn't use just a regular bulb. You, well, again, that's the thing. You don't want to go super crazy and get these massive catheters, right? You're, right. Again, you're thinking, you know, I want to get in there with this 10 inch long catheter and do it. You probably either can perforate it or two, get too deep where you're actually stimulating more poop to come out than you need. Got it. Got it. So just use the standard stuff that you get over the counter for an enema. Yes. Don't buy extra catheters or anything else. Like yeah. Got exactly. It. And then great, great points about the temperature because I didn't know that. So yeah. that's really helpful. <laughs> and then in terms of like prepare, like 
not causing injury, right? So using either butt plugs or being getting yourself prepared for a penetrative anal intercourse, receptive intercourse. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the first things first, use lubricant, get permission. <laughs> Number one, get permission from your partner because when it's consensual, then you're a lot more receptive being to being relaxative, right? You can relax and say, okay, I'm ready to to receive. Number two, use lubrication and protection because when it's consensual, protected, lubricated, it's more likely that your nerves are say, okay, I'm not so stressed out about it. I'm going to calm down, which will actually allow for the rectal muscles to relax as well, right? And the anal muscles to relax as well. So that can help to soften it up so that when you're when you're starting, you can start slow and then, you know, get larger as, as needed. And so by starting slow, do you mean that you should start essentially with smaller items like a finger or a butt plug before you move on to a larger phallus or a larger toy? Yes, absolutely. You can start with a smaller, you know, just a finger first using um, gloves even. And if your partner has latex allergy, don't use latex gloves, use nitrile gloves. I would recommend using a lubricant with it, an oil-based or water-based lubricant or a silicone-based lubricant. And that way, you know, it's you decrease the amount of friction that's there. And remember, the anal tissue is much thinner than vaginal tissue. So you want to be careful. You don't want to just shove it in there. Start with a smaller finger, especially if this is the first time. Start with a smaller finger and go slow. Mm-hmm. and then see how, how you feel. And yeah, and then I always tell people when you're looking at lubricants, actually water-based lubricants have different pHs. So they're based on, you can have a vaginal, which is isoosmolar to vaginal pH, but the anal pH is actually different. So you can actually look for anal pH lubricants. Mm-hmm. That can be helpful. And then, yes, absolutely use a lot of lube. The water-based ones evaporate, so you'll need to reapply. So make sure that you do that. And then if you're using... Silicone or oil-based, that's totally fine. Oil-based with condoms, if you're trying to protect, can break down the condom. So make sure you feel comfortable that that person has been screened for STIs or in a monogamous relationship and you've both been screened before you use oil-based lubricants. Yeah, great. And then in terms of injury, right? So I got a lot of questions about (laughs) sphincter injury, anal prolapse after anal intercourse, or fecal incontinence. So do you see these things? Can they happen? How should people avoid those sorts of injuries? Yeah, of course. If you if it's too fast and too hard and too soon in any in any of those orders, it can happen, right? You can tear some of the skin in the anal verge just by entering too fast without it, you know, having been stretched out, right? If this is your first time, go slow, go small, and then work your way up. If it's too large and you haven't experienced it before, that can cause anal tearing and bleeding. If you haven't cleaned out sufficiently and you've got uh, fecal remnants in your anal verge, you can have accidents. Or contra- uh, conversely, if you've cleaned too much, right? You really got in there and you used that really long bulb that was, you know, you, you were trying to get all the way to the end of your colon and you, you got in there and now you've made a mess. I would recommend using a towel so that at least that, that can prevent your sheets from getting dirty. People had asked, are there certain foods that you should eat before anal play? I would recommend foods that, one, help you clean out your bowels, right? So you want to not be constipated because the last thing you want is to have to find out that you had four rocks, you know, that were right past your rectosigmoid junction that never really came out. And now you put three, you know, bouts of enemas and now there's one that finally trickled back down and it's on its way out. Okay. So fiber but not too much fiber because you don't want to have diarrhea either, okay? 
Protein will help harden your stool. Fiber will help to some degree soften it. So have a good proportion of each. You want to possibly likely avoid caffeine because again, too much caffeine, your colon will go crazy, right? So kind of avoid that before and then go from there. And should you avoid prebiotics or probiotics before? No, that's not necessarily. Yeah, no, no. Okay. Yeah. How long before anal sex should you eat? Like, is there, should they, should they be trying to fast for a certain period of time or uh, is there any recommendation? Like what's normal motility and like, what can you sort of like estimate? Oh, you know, that I think is very person dependent, right? If you're someone who's got IBSD, where soon after you eat, you know, an hour or two after you eat, you've got to go to the bathroom. You got to personally time that out. That has nothing to do whether or not you're going to get anal play, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're going to have anal sex. So if you ate something that has a ton of fiber in it and where you have had lactose in it and you're lactose intolerant, whether or not you're going to have anal play, you're going to be heading to the bathroom. So time out your foods prior to that. And remember that you're going to be cleaning out your bottom likely 60 minutes prior to that. So time out your food maybe an hour even before that so that you have time to empty your bowels and then get to your play. Yeah, so it's very individualized is what you're saying. So basically yes. maybe take note of your normal body, like how often you go after you eat and yeah. then you can sort of figure it out from there. Absolutely. Does, okay, this one's this one's sort of interesting. This one came from our Instagram audience, but does anal play have a, a possibility of actually improving constipation? Like is there a, <laughs> or improving relaxation if you have pelvic floor dysfunction? Well, that's that's a really good question. I mean, a lot of in times in pelvic floor physical therapy, you, they do help you in terms of relaxing the way you squeeze your own pelvic floor muscles. So perhaps the act of allowing your own pelvic floor muscles to relax can likely help you relax when you're having a bowel movement, right? Mm -hmm. And so you are using those same muscles. And so perhaps, I don't know if that's my number one recommendation to constipated patients, but that can be a potential side effect. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I would just say make sure that when you're engaging in the anal play that you are fully relaxed because if you're like really stressed about it and like your partner's a little pushy and you don't really, you're not really sure you want it, you may have the opposite effect. It could actually worsen your pelvic floor. So 100%. if you are relaxed and receptive and ready and you're both listening to each other and communicating and saying, no, I want this. Yes, I want this. And like taking it very slow, I think it can be beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. A, a lot of pelvic floor dysfunction does happen from anal trauma or sexual trauma that happened that was not welcomed. Mm -hmm. And so when it was not welcomed, your body tensed up and was like, no, I don't want this. And so if that's the case, you you don't, you may not have that effect on, on the pelvic floor. So yeah, absolutely. All right. So we end our podcast with a quick, like sort of Fast four questions. And okay. so you just, whatever comes to your mind, what is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? Fiber is the key to it all. <laughs> That's really good. What is a non-negotiable? Something that you do every day that if you didn't do, you would feel like your day is incomplete. Sleep. If I don't get adequate amount of sleep, it's like I haven't gotten to hit the reset button and I don't do well without it. Yeah, sleep is transformative. I mean, we talk about it a lot on my channel about how sleep improves your testosterone and improves and and lack of sleep is is so detrimental in performance, whether it's mental performance, physical performance, driving a car. So just super important to get good sleep and that's yes. a great one. What's one thing, and I'm sure you have many, but what's one thing that you wish could be done that would change the world? Ooh. 
acceptance. Uh, whether it's personalities, whether it's ideas, whether it's religion, whether it's gender, acceptance of one another. I think we are as wonderful and as beautiful and as successful as we uh, as you know we can be once we accept one another because everything everyone brings something new to the table. So acceptance. That's awesome. And then lastly, what is one, it could be a personal or a health life hack. Don't change yourself for anyone. You know, I think we grow up in a society where there are a lot of societal expectations, personal expectations, and media and social media certainly influences so much of that. And we feel as though we need to conform to those expectations in order for people to like us. And as we get older, we start to shed some of those. And the happiest we become is when we are who we are and we accept ourselves and say, okay, this is who I am. Accept me. If you don't, that's okay. I accept myself and this is what I'm going to do. And you'll be happier and more successful if you accept yourself and learn to be receptive to having others love that as well. Acceptance all around. Yes. Love it. Yeah. So we're going to end the show with where can people find you? So you can find me on uh, www.kumkumpatelmd.com and on Instagram at dr.gut underscore motility. Yay. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you are enjoying the podcast, a wonderful and free, easy way to support us is by subscribing to our channel on YouTube, as well as following us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or whatever platform you enjoy consuming your social media with. On our YouTube channel, in addition to this podcast, we have weekly videos that discuss urologic and sexual health topics on a weekly basis. And on all other platforms, you can find short form video that covers many additional topics that we cover throughout the year. Another wonderful way to support our podcast is by leaving a rating or a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. This helps our podcast visibility and allows us to reach more individuals. Thanks so much. And always remember to take care of yourself because you are worth it.